Have you heard the good news? All About Beer is back online. The longtime publication is now part of the Beer Edge family, and its vast archives, as well as new articles, can be found at allaboutbeer.com. Go check it out and visit often. This is Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. From working with global local ingredients to finding creativity through flavor, Austin Jevney, the owner and head brewer of Humble Forager Brewery, is here to talk about working around arcane regulations and making beers for a modern audience. First up, Cigar City is a sponsor of this episode, and we're grateful for that. Wayne Wombles is here. He's Cigar City's brewmaster, and we're talking about Highlight, likely the best-known core offering from the brewery. Wayne, welcome. And when it comes to Highlight, where do you think this beer stands in the IPA category? Well, the concept started back in 2008, John, and um, I saw a pretty vast delineation between East Coast and West Coast IPA at the time. And I wanted to sort of straddle the fence with this one. So I wanted the balance to be between you know, malt and hops, uh, but also wanted a unique hop expression that sort of expressed the area where the beer is actually being brewed, which is Tampa, Florida, subtropics. So I wanted to try to impart some tropical characteristics from the hop additions that we're using to produce the beer to emulate that sort of feeling of being in that part of Florida. So it, it sort of falls in between East Coast and West Coast IPA and is a more balanced tropical version of the American IPA. I love it. Wayne, thanks so much. We're going to have more with you at the bottom of the show. But for now, I'm going to encourage everyone to visit CigarCityBrewing.com to learn more about Highlight and all of the other beers from the brewery. Don't forget to visit BeerEdge.com to sign up for the newsletter, to catch up with the Beer Edge podcast, and to check out our merch page, which is full of This Week in Rauk Beer gear, as well as Defend Pilsner mugs. And the Craft Brewery Cookbook is now available for pre-order online wherever you get your books. Packed with recipes and stories from some of the best breweries in the country, this cookbook has all of your beer and food pairing needs covered in a fresh and inventive way. Published by Princeton Architectural Press, it releases on May 10th, so pre-order now, wherever books are sold. Much of the professional brewing world is focused on Minnesota this week, as the annual Craft Brewers Conference is happening, along with the World Beer Cup competition. I thought it'd be good to check in with a brewer in the state, or at least one connected with the state. Minnesota beer laws are wonky, which has led to creative solutions. Austin Jevney, the owner and head brewer of Humble Forager, which is contract brewed in Wisconsin as well as in Minneapolis, will explain how the brand developed out of the existing brew pub in Rochester, Minnesota. From finding local ingredients on his travels that inspire new beers, to scaling up from small batches to large ones while not sacrificing on flavor or ethos, Austin takes us through his creative process. He's also big on collaborations, and he gives us a curtain raiser on one that's being brewed this week with other half. He sees beer as an adventure and wants every recipe to reflect that sense. And if you're still brewing small and curious about finding your own local ingredients, he has tips for that as well. Here's our conversation. I was looking at the Humble Forager website, and there's this idea that you call thinking globally. Uh, and you say that the ingredients used in our ales are sourced from around the planet, and you want to make sure that the people who grow and process them are taken care of. Uh, we support growers who share our values and vision for sustainability. When I think about foraging, 
so much of it is local. So much of it is in in you know a backyard in a in a, in a specific region. And I was really struck by the idea of you trying to uh, work with folks around the world for their local ingredients to then put into 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 your beers. And it, it for me, it was just kind of fun to think about how you're making the world just a little bit smaller through beer. It, is that fair? Is, is is that sort of the way that you've been thinking about it? Absolutely. I think um, one of the other core pillars of our brand is to to think globally and to realize that in this world that we live in right now, the one thing that connects us most is our planet and that we all rely on the health of that um, to move forward as a you know, human civilization on this, uh, this beautiful earth. So I wanted to really you know, focus this brand with, with the ideas and core values of what we do at Forager, which is support local farmers because we're a small restaurant. And we do that by supporting over 40 different um, small farmers that are within basically a 70 mile radius of our brewery. Um, but looking at like a larger brand and doing something that's more macro than micro, um, we wanted to understand how we can still use real ingredients and not go the artificial route that a lot of bigger breweries do to achieve their flavors. And, and kind of by harnessing that vision, it forced us to think outside of just our, our region. Um, we, really wanted to use ingredients that work properly in the beers that we're designing and not all of those grow here in the Midwest. And a lot of our flavors are inspired by things that we have been able to taste from other chefs and um, people from around the world who, you know, showcase the unique flavors of their specific localized environments. We just wanted to show people um, and give people the opportunity to learn about some of those things and think a little bit more globally um, while still foraging, you know, the planet essentially for the best flavors that we can find. Can, can you give me an example of a beer that you've done recently? So I can sort of get it in my mind, like what you just explained, how you're you know, trying to find the best, trying to to, to source ingredients that matter like is, is is there something that you've made that you can illustrate that point yeah absolutely so um our seltzer line uh is called it's a buzzed seltzer uh, uh, it's called humble bumble is the line of it and um we were fortunate enough right before covid to go to thailand um our graphic designer her name's ashley holst and she lives in barcelona she's um my partner's um, sister and she spent some time teaching in Thailand. So we were able to go to Thailand and uh, travel around for a couple of weeks um, in December of 2019. And I was able to taste some fruits over there that I had limited exposure to. Um, one of them that really captured my senses was mangosteen. And um, mm. not a lot of people know what it is. I, I don't. Yeah. It's a really, really cool fruit. It's called the queen of fruits. And um, it comes in a little magenta purple package. Um, it's kind of a thicker rind and it's this really unique looking fruit that doesn't catch your eye like a dragon fruit does when it's sitting like on the shelf. Um, but when you cut it open, it has these different segments that are kind of this pearly white color inside um, that have this kind of fibrous 
um, but juicy texture to it. And it was like this amazing cross between a peach, strawberry, and lychee fruit. And I was just so taken by it. And I was buying them everywhere I could over there. Um, And it was like, I got to use this. Nobody knows what this is. This is such, such a delicious flavor profile. And we started to make smoothies with it every morning. And I was playing with other fruit profiles that we were buying at these local markets. And so I reached out when I got home to um, one of our importers of different fruits and said, hey, can you find mangosteen um, coming from Thailand in this region? And they were like, oh, we work with a couple partners over there, but it's pretty limited. It's hard to get right now. Um, so it actually took us about a year and a half to source the mangosteen puree um, that we got um, from over there in Thailand. And it came through and we basically emulated one of the smoothies that I had made while in Thailand with different fruits. Um, it was like clementine, a little bit of banana, a little bit of passion fruit. Um, there was a little bit of um, the mangosteen in there. And it just turned out into this like wonderful seltzer of like deep tropical flavors. And then we kind of like tied that back to our local environment here in Minnesota by using um, some local goldenrod honey that um, a local apiary produces for us. Um, So we were able to kind of like bring this inspiration and flavor profile from an adventure overseas Um, find the fruit, and then be able to actually produce it using also some local ingredients from here right around the corner from us. The, I'm sort of struck by the nature of hard seltzer as I know it, where the words like natural flavoring will be used by a lot of the, uh, uh, the, the, the the larger brands. Um, But (laughs) There's not really a lot of uh, nature in in those beverages. Um, when you're creating a hard seltzer uh, that does you know play in with you know everything that you just described of locally sourced or you know uh, regionally sourced or or um, you know wanting to get true flavors into it even through even through purees, um, is is it a tough sell to people? Because I I, I I, I I don't do do seltzer customers care about actual natural ingredients versus hey they said this is going to taste like blueberry and it tastes like blueberry and yeah it's the same syrup that they use at Starbucks yeah um, I think that's like a, a really great question and it's one that I'm trying to discover the answer to right now um, we've been kind of pushing our humble bumble a little bit earlier than most people make their seltzers I think a lot of people think. You know, seltzer season is is summer, and there is a lot of numbers to support that. I, however, um, am in the court of believing that seltzer is becoming a year-round beverage for people. Um, there's a lot of different reasons people are drinking seltzer. Uh, one of them is probably uh, the fact that it's usually, uh, depending on where it's being made, a gluten-free option. Mm-hmm. Um, the other source for, especially those big brands, is it's a low-calorie option. Um, it's very um, drinkable as far as it being filling for, you know, enjoyment in warm weather. Um, so I I think that like it, it's found a place in the market and is going to stay there year round. Obviously you've seen bigger brands try to produce 
uh, fall winter themed flavor profiles. Um, I personally think those are disgusting. Um, <laughs> but you know, and I think most seltzer drinkers actually do too. They've given them a shot and, uh, it doesn't seem to really work out. I don't know if peppermint patty and seltzers like necessarily something you want to be drinking. Um, but you know, people are doing that. And for us, I have found that people who drink seltzer are drinking it for those reasons I said before. And the difference is when you taste something that says it's going to taste like blueberry and it's an artificial blueberry, it might taste like what a lab thinks blueberry is supposed to taste like and recreating those chemicals that taste like this close to blueberry flavor. But when you taste the actual flavor of blueberry and the texture of blueberry and the aromatics of real blueberry, there's a massive difference. And me going out into retail establishments and sampling this product out um, has seen honestly incredible results for people to, to want to transition. It is a premium product. So I sell them on it as the idea of, you know, this is a seltzer that's versatile. This is not a seltzer that you're going to go out and drink a 12 pack of on the boat. This is a seltzer that you're going to enjoy one of, you know, in for brunch on a Sunday morning. This is a seltzer that you're going to mix with your favorite uh, cocktail, like come up with craft cocktail ideas with this seltzer. It's going to basically provide you with a, a pre-made mixer that also has 5% alcohol in it and a little bit of carbonation. So I think I don't want to put seltzer drinkers into a category any longer. I thought that, you know, maybe this wouldn't work and seltzer drinkers only want clear bubbly 95 calorie 5%, you know, stuff that finishes metallic and tinny and artificial and just pours down your throat like bubbles. Um, mm -hmm. it, it turns out that once people understand that seltzer can be real, we've seen really, really great success um, with, with those marketing programs of getting it into people's mouths. It's just a matter of them tasting it and taking a chance on it. Um, especially non-seltzer drinkers. We've turned into seltzer drinkers with this product because most like, people- Like beer drinkers, you mean? Yes, yeah. beer drinkers, um, wine drinkers, spirit okay. drinkers um, who are like, oh, I, I don't like seltzer. I just say, okay, great. Then I have the product for you to try. And I would say nine out of 10 of those people are walking away with a four pack of Humble Bumble being like, I guess I finally found a seltzer I like. It, so there is something to it. And I believe so anyways. I'm all for diversity on tap lists. And I, I think that breweries should be thinking of other beverages a, a, as well, um, just to diversify their portfolio and to try to get as many uh, customers coming in and sticking around for as long as they like. Um, uh, although when I look at the numbers of the very large seltzer companies, the the White Claws and Trulies and High Noons, et cetera, that are out there, um, it, it does strike me as the very early days of craft uh, where it was Goliath versus David's, that kind of thing. But um, is it, what is it even competition at this point? Like, are, are are there two different seltzer categories based on size and ownership? Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. I, I compare doing these tastings and samplings. I compare it to the beginnings of craft beer where 25, 30 years ago, beer was thought of as a yellow bubbly liquid that came from a very few large corporations 
And then you've seen what happens with craft and how that's opened up and developed in the beer category over the past 30 years and what market share craft has taken from the big guys and just the diversity and flavors and experimentation and new styles of beer that have developed from that passion and science behind all of that. I think seltzer is at that turning point right now where it was controlled by all these big people and, you know, and it's only been around for, you know, a couple of years really where it's had a good hold on the market. Um, and you're seeing that piece grow big and you see these big guys getting into it because they know that, you know, it's going to be a huge thing here to stay. Uh, so I, I look at it as the same exact thing as an opportunity to um, carve out this small niche market for craft seltzer makers out there who are doing things in a different way and, you know, really trying to fight against just the big flavorless um, seltzers. And there's a, absolutely a purpose for for White Claw and Truly to be out there, just as there's a purpose for all big brand domestic beers to be in that portfolio. Um, and I have nothing, nothing against any of those companies and how they operate and what they do. Um, I just uh, run my businesses in a very different way with a different goal and a different mission. And we uh, we're happy to see that um, a lot of people are taking to it and and thinking that there is a better option out there with a, a more sustainable you know practice for giving money back to like real people and real communities from around the world rather than to corporations that you know make extract flavorings that easily can be dripped in. Yeah. I feel like I could stay on seltzer for uh, a, a longer time, but I want to. Uh talk about the, the, the overall business. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, listeners of this show might remember that uh, Murphy Johnson of Blackstack Brewing was on Steal the Spear recently, and we got into all of the, or at least a little bit, of the arcane, insane, uh, frustrating laws in and around the alcohol beverage space uh, in the great state of Minnesota. Um, so go back and listen to that if you haven't. Um, but Austin, Forager, the original brewery brew pub, um, is in Rochester, Minnesota. So uh, what did you say that was? About 90 minutes, an hour, 15, um, south-ish of the Twin Cities? Yeah, depending on where you're heading, um, it's okay. about an hour and 15 minutes to get downtown, you know. Once yeah. you get up to the cities, you can spend an hour and a half just driving across town. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah it's just traffic. Um, but it's, uh, but it, there's limitations to having a, 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 a small brewery in your state. And so um, you found the workaround, and that's where Humble Forager came from and was born from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was one of the uh, co-founders, owners of Forager Brew Pub down in Rochester, and I had been there um, for about five years. We're six and a half years old now, and I was we we're trying to find a way to change the laws in Minnesota to allow brew pubs to do small distribution. Um, brew pubs in Minnesota are not allowed to. We are allowed to carry guest taps on our tap line. We can carry wine and spirits in our tap room. Um, but therefore we're not allowed to distribute any beer. So any distribution company like Blackstack, if you go to their tap room, you're only going to find Blackstack beer because they're not allowed to carry guest taps right. and they are also not allowed to serve wine or spirits in house. Um, so those are kind of the two different things. And, uh, our 
legislation here um, will not and doesn't plan on ever allowing those changes with the people who are currently on the boards. Um, so we kind of, you know, we're being asked by a number of bars and liquor stores throughout the Midwest of like, oh, we would really love to get Forager beer, um, you know, in our stores or on tap. And I had to keep telling this story of, you know, well, you can't do it. We've tried to change it. We're not really sure if that's going to happen. Um, and I was speaking with a really good friend of mine, Levi Funk from the Funk Factory and Untitled Art uh, yep. down in Madison, Wisconsin. And he's like, hey, well, why don't you come out and check out this spot, Octopi? Let's do a collaboration with Forager. Um, we want to do a sour beer here and they'd never done anything kettle sour before, um, at their facility. And he's like, yeah, it's just like a really great playground for brewers. You got to come check this place out. And I was like, all right, I grew up in Madison. So make a weekend of it. Um, bring a kid down there to see, uh, grandma and grandpa and, you know, <laughs> I'll come check out the brewery and we'll make this kettle sour. So yeah. I work with their team. Um, we do a kettle sour down there and I'm like, holy cow, this, uh, place is actually, really, really state of the art. And Isaac Schwaki is got this awesome vision for it. He really sees, I think, a need um, that a lot of craft brewers from around the country want to, you know, fit into that thing where it's like they want to make a little bit more beer, but they can't on their size and whatever limiting factors. So I got to talking with them and, you know, we went through a bunch of like legal um, discussions with attorneys in the state of Minnesota to kind of find a way of like, how can we do this? How can we make a contract brewery um, or a different brand? And came down to basically having to split up ownership of our companies. So we had a couple silent investors at Forager. Um, and we also, you know, had Annie Henderson, the owner of Forager. She was majority share owner. She and I wanted to open Humble Forager together as we did Forager. But after finding it out, we couldn't do that because you can't own like bars and restaurants and distribution brewing companies. That's just like a big federal law and yeah. back to Minnesota as well. So I ended up being like, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. You're not going to, you're very vital in the front of the house operations at the restaurant and we need you there. And I have some really great brewers that I've trained in and trust uh, moving forward. So I'm going to step down as head brewer and co-owner at Forager and I'm just going to own humble Forager. Um, so I'm a friend of a lot of these brewers and we still talk shop and, you know, I go eat food there and I'm definitely not, I'm not like employed by Forager, but you know, I'm still a friend of Foragers, obviously, as most breweries are around the country. We have collaborative discussions about things and, and work that way. Of course. And so I, I own Forager, but we actually had to split up all of our um, silent investors as well who wanted to kind of jump on board with Humble Forager. So we had a number of families um, that were just invested in Forager and they wanted to also give some startup capital to Humble Forager. So we had to split that up, which was kind of a, a nightmare for everyone to have to like have who wants Humble Forager, who wants Forager. Um, so it was kind of a difficult thing to get done legally, uh, but we were able to get there and start a new business. And so far it's a, it's been a super fun learning experience for me because I came from a, you know, three and a half barrel uh, brew house at Forager to d taking recipes that I developed there and tweaking them and making new recipes that are based off of what I had done at Forager, um, but upscaled to at Octopi a hundred barrel brew house or at Fair State, a 30 barrel brew house. Yeah. Um, 
So it's, it's actually been great though, to use those facilities and their super advanced technologies, um, learn from their brewers as well. Um, it's expanded my knowledge of the industry um, tenfold uh, from just being a little brew pub to going into international distribution. Back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, this episode is brought to you by Highlight IPA from Cigar City Brewing. It's a bold, citrusy, and balanced India Pale Ale that involves six different hop varietals used generously in a 7.5% ABV beer. Look for notes of orange peel, clementine, and light caramel to share the story and sunshine of Florida. Learn more at CigarCityBrewing.com. And now, back to my conversation with Austin Jevney of Humble Forager Brewing. When you scale from you know, the three and a half barrel system up to 100 barrel plus, um, you know, so many of the beers, when you were making them on, the, on that level, you could use you know, real local ingredients. You, know, you could use you know, stuff from you know, the farm down the street in just small, small quantities. When you were thinking about scaling up to, to the 100 barrel, um, what had to be left behind? Uh, the things that had to be left behind were actually foraging out yeah. in the woods for ingredients. <laughs> um, we love to do that at Forager for our wild program, like our saisons and uh, anything mixed firm. Mm -hmm. uh, we really focus on using 100% whole fruits. Um, most of them are either grown or foraged within about 30 miles of our brewery. There are some that we buy from like Door County, Wisconsin. We've met some great farmers there and up north in Minnesota as well, who will drive down their, their fruit harvest for us. Um, but that just became an unrealistic thing to do um, to get the volume of ingredients that we would actually need to have an impact in a hundred barrel batch. Um, I wouldn't feel that that would be sustainable foraging um, in the woods. That would be hiring a group of 50 people and just wrap It'd be like a swarm of locusts uh, taking over a field. We wouldn't want to do that. Um, so we leave the, the actual foraging to uh, forager brew pub. But what we do do um, that kind of parallels the, the work at forager is buy from real farmers. So for instance, we did a collaboration with uh, Horace aged ales out of Oceanside, California last mm -hmm. year. It was called Fishing with Horace. All of our collaborations basically are activities we like to do out in the world uh, with the collaborating brewery. And it was a uh, maple syrup, um, coffee, hazelnut stout. And Kyle is kind of like really well known for his coffee and hazelnut usage in beers. So um, we wanted to do that. And the maple syrup was kind of like our thing that we do a lot of at Forager. So we went to our Amish friend, Alan Miller, who lives over in the Driftless area of Wisconsin. And we normally buy sap from him every spring as the trees are running. We go down, take an IBC toad at Forager and fill that up and bring it back and brew with the sap in place of water. That's cool. Um, yeah. So for those of you who don't know how maple syrup is, works, um, when it comes out of the tree, it's it has a little bit of sugar. The bricks are usually between like two and five. Um, and we then use that. So if you were to make maple syrup, you would boil that sap down. Usually the average ratio is 40 gallons of sap make one gallon of maple syrup. So we're buying usually about 
300 gallons at a time of the sap. And then we're brewing big, huge imperial porters and stouts and barley wines um, with that sap in place of water. Um, we have a number of different beers and barrels that we've released and um, unbarreled beers um, in the past. But Alan has some really, really great uh, syrup there. So at the end of the year, I was like, hey, Alan, I would like to buy 100 and 50 gallons of your maple syrup. And he's like, wow, that's a lot. That's going to be super helpful, you know, to my, my family and whatnot. Cause this is one of his, his main gigs is just selling this maple syrup. So we brought that down and we infused, um, this beer with 150 gallons of this maple syrup that we had bought from a guy that we work with directly from forager. But instead of ordering, um, like, these hazelnuts, like there's a lot of options for our official hazelnut out there. I've been marketed to by tons of different companies that are like, Hey, this hazelnut will work so well and make your stuff taste like Folgers hazelnut flavored coffee. And we're like, well, we're not really going for that flavor profile. So there's a Oregon hazelnut growers association, which I reached out to in the uh, state of Oregon. And they um, put me in touch with a couple smaller growers who grew us a ton of roasted hazelnuts. So they grew them, then they roasted them, and then they chopped them up for us and sent them to us directly to go into the beer. Um, so they were roasted about two days before they actually went into the product. Um, so we had this local maple syrup. We had real hazelnuts in that beer. We worked with our friends in California from Mastra Coffee as well to get fresh coffee beans in there. And then we'd also thrown in over a ton of Sri Lankan toasted coconut, uh, which we had brought in through a different importer up here in Minnesota. So mm. we made 150 barrels of this Imperial stout at Octopi, but still used nothing but real whole ingredients in that, in that beer. And that is kind of like the focus of, how we take what we do at Forager and some beer, some things we can't do, but some things we still can buy all these ingredients from uh, real local small farmed people. I dig it. Um, with collaborations, uh, the Craft Brewers Conference, we're recording this before the Craft Brewers Conference is coming up uh, in your home state. Um I imagine that there's a bunch of people who are going to be uh, coming through uh, Forager and uh, you being friends with them that you're probably going to be hanging uh, around there a, a little bit. Um, before we went on, you mentioned, though, that you're you're doing a collaboration with Other Half. Yeah, um, we're super excited to work with Sam. And I think what's special about having CBC in Minnesota is Normally for people who live on the coast, like Minnesota is flyover country. Not a lot of people are coming here to, um, you know, stop into our facility um, unless you're kind of doing like a driving tour through the Midwest and you maybe pop up to us on your way to Chicago or um, different areas of Wisconsin. Um, but it, it gave a really good opportunity for some of my good friends from the coast where we go to their festivals and we've collaborated with them when we get fortunate enough um, invitations to, to visit those beautiful states. Um, and it, it's uh, given us a good opportunity. So we're doing a um, collaboration with Sam from Other Half, and we're really excited to be doing a Pilsner with him because I think Sam was trained um, in making classic styles of beer and 
now at other half as much as they they do do pilsners there i think their focus obviously is what we all know them for their ipas um some of their great stouts and also their their mix firm program as well um so we were excited that sam wanted to come by and do a pilsner we're also doing a collaboration with moxa um derek's coming down uh for during the CBC week to uh, produce a big, huge barrel-aged stout. Uh, we brewed one of those when we were out with him. And then Corey is coming up from Three Sons. Uh, so we kind of have all corners of the country um, filled in there for the uh, collaborations, which we're really excited about doing that. And then obviously I want to get up to the cities too to uh, attend um, as many different parties and events as I can. So we didn't want to overbook the, the brew house that week because we also want to spend a little time with our friends in the metro area. Um, you mentioned that you like doing activities, uh, naming these beers after, after uh, activities that you enjoy doing. Do, do you have your other half and your, uh, do you have your other half activity lined up yet? So um, when we do that, we brand that with Humble Forager, actually. So, okay. Forager, so this is going to be Forager, not Humble Forager. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we just kind of like let those go um, as, you know, whatever the uh, brewery that we're working with, like wants to name those beers. We, we kind of just like have fun that day. And usually by the end of the day, a, a word phrase thing comes up a few times and we, we play off of that generally for collaboration names at Forager. Um, but yeah, as far as the humble forager names, it's, um, <clears throat> so Ryan from angry chair, um, not many people know this, so sorry, Ryan, I'm blowing you up, but he's like a scratch golfer. Um, he played golf for the university of Wisconsin and super fun to go play golf with him. And I, I enjoy that sport as well. So <laughs> whenever we're going to hang out and play golf, it's like, Hey, are we swinging sticks this time? So our collaboration with them was swinging sticks with angry chair. Um, <laughs> did one with, um, cam from a state brewing company. And we like to talk about the cosmos together. So that one was called stargazing with eighth state. Um, our collaboration with pulpit rock was hiking with pulpit rock because we've gone on hikes together, uh, when we go down to Decora and, and do those things. Um, so yeah, they're, they're all kind of like most of humble forgers branding is based off of like activities that we like to do in the world or like we would love for other people to experiment with and, and try at some point um, to do outdoorsy things. Um, and so we, we kind of try to bring that around to our collaborations as well. Cool. Um, all right. Let me ask you just because I know with humble forager, you're not going out into the woods or going out into the world and picking stuff yourself, but um, the name and the, and the activity is, is, is on my brain just, simply because of the, the name of your brewery um, and you've done it before. What do you, I, I I've struggled with this before um, with foraging and beer because you don't want to take too much from the land. You want to be respectful of the land. You want to um, you know, make sure that there's enough to go around and, 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 and not be greedy. Um, or at least that's the way that I've approached it. Um uh, in, in, in conversations, I don't, I don't leave my house. So like, I don't, I'm afraid of nature, but, um, <laughs> the, for, for people who are, you know, thinking about it, home brewers or, you know, pro brewers, or just, you know, people, people in general, um, seem to have a pretty healthy respect for the land. Um, 
how do you talk to people about approaching foraging if they're new to it? Yeah, I, um, I did a discussion about this at the Carnival de Bretanomyces in Amsterdam yeah. um, a number of years ago. And some of like the key points I like to make when discussing foraging with people are the main thing is you want to first know that where you're foraging is okay to forage in so that you don't end up on someone else's property or you're taking something um, from like a state park that you're not supposed to be picking from there. So you want to do some research before you go out on where you're going to, where you're planning on going, what you're planning on looking for is the second piece because um, there are a lot of things out in the wild that are lookalikes, especially when you get into mushrooms and plants when they're small. Um, so you want to you usually always bring along a, a book at the minimum. And if you have other friends who've been foraging before or have, have done this and are a little more experienced, bring them along so that they can teach you out in the woods because there's definitely things to avoid. Um, there's, uh, situations that things will grow in, uh, that you want to avoid. Um, elderberries is an easy one for me to say, because if it grows in a really swampy area where there's like higher levels of arsenic in the ground, those elderberries mm. are going to hold that. Um, so you want to make sure that what you're where and what you're picking is going to be good for your final product. Um, the easiest ones to go with usually are, are simple things that you're just kind of using a wild foraged ingredient in place of something else. Whereas you may want to make like a raspberry sour ale. Raspberries are pretty easy to identify. Um, there's not a lot of lookalikes and you're going to, you know, find a little bit of them and they can really accent flavors in, in your product. Um, the other, the other piece of it is, you know, you just want to like be careful because the flavor profiles of the things that you're going to forage they may have no impact or they may might have a severe impact on your, on your beer and it could turn out bad. Um, and you just also want to let your drinkers know of what you put in there. Um, sure. Some people may have allergies to hundred percent yeah. that you want to put in. So um, if you're going to use wild foraged ingredients, you always want to make sure that if you're a professional company that you're selling something, you, you talk about that um, to your servers and bartenders and also clearly label it on your menus. Uh, but if you're like a home brewer and you're just having some random neighbors over, you want to let them know that, you know, you picked this wild nettle from, you know, their backyard and put it into this beer um, that they might not want to drink that if they feel like, Oh, I don't know if I'm going to have a good reaction to this. Uh, so yeah. you just have to be conscious of a lot of those kind of things. Um, but then, yeah, obviously being respectful to the land and where you forage is just kind of one of the, the core values of being a forager. Um, you want to pick enough uh, that you can do what you're planning on doing with it, but you have to remember that a lot of these plants reseed from what they drop. Um, so they will require, you know, a good percentage of those things to be left um, alone. Um, animals and birds eat these. Uh, you just don't want to go in and trample over uh, huge areas of uh, wild America and leave it uh, destroyed. You want to kind of go in and it, have it seem like you've never been there. Like leave no trace is a, a word that I like to, or a phrase that I like to use. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I've been asking folks on the show for 
gosh, probably the better part of a year now. Um, the 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 premise is my wife and I were rewatching The Good Place, um, and there's a, a whole concept on the show. If you're not familiar uh, with a green door, where you can walk through a green door and be anywhere you want at any point in time uh, with whoever you want to be with, and so if such a door existed on this point of existence. Um, and we could finish this conversation. You could walk through a green door and be at any pub or any brewery anywhere in the world. Where would you want to be? Who would you want to be with? And what would you like in your glass? Oh, that's a, that's a really uh, good question. Um, for me, it probably would be um, at back. I've been there before and it's a really, really great experience. Um, back at Cantillon, um, in Brussels. I think that what they do there and the history of that building and the vibe you get inside of it is very special. Um, and I'd probably want to be there with a whole bunch of my friends from the brewing industry. It's hard, it's hard to name them all here in one statement. Um, but I can think of a, a few of them that have influenced me greatly. And that would be, uh, Levi Funk from Funk Factory, Kyle Horup from Horace Agedales, uh, Ryan Dodal from Angry Chair, um, Bob Slack from Pulpit Rock. Um, I could keep going. Joe Wells from Fair State. Um, there are a lot of really, really wonderful people. Yeah, you're putting um, together I a murderer's row of brewers there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would want to uh, fill up Cantillon's little tasting room with all the people that I've met <laughs> who've influenced me. And I'm sorry if I didn't say your name on here, all those people who I want you to be there with me. Yeah. Um, but to take up an hour of this show just naming you all <laughs> sure um <laughs> i could make the easy joke that you know you could just uh, uh freak everybody out by having in-depth discussions about hard seltzer while there but i imagine <laughs> that you'd be talking about uh other important brewing matters and life matters um cool i dig that uh well Thanks for thanks for being on the show this week. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for sharing your insight and your expertise. And um, looking forward to uh, tasting your beers and uh, hopefully getting down to to Forager at least um, when I'm in town for the for the, for the Brewers Conference and then uh, uh, clinking glasses in person with uh, Humble Forager um, down the line. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, John. And I look forward to seeing you during CBC. Don't forget, All About Beer is back online. Go to allaboutbeer.com to catch up with great new articles as well as the vast archives. And please keep in touch. Do you have questions, comments? You can email me. It's John Hall. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beeredge.com. Or you can get with me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Check out beeredge.com for our This Week in Rauk Beer and Defend Pilsner merch and follow along on social media at The Beer Edge. And I guess I should point out as well that All About Beer is also on social media at All About Beer, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Of course, This Week in Rauk Beer is also online. The Facebook group is easy to search and on Twitter and Instagram, it's at TWRaukBeer. We're able to bring you the show each week thanks to the companies that want to support independent journalism in the beer space. If you'd like to learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates, please reach out to sponsor at beeredge.com. Speaking of that, as promised, I'm back with Wayne Wombles. He's the brewmaster of Cigar City and the brewery is a sponsor of this episode and we're thankful for that. And Wayne, we're talking high lie this week. And when it comes to that IPA, 
What do you want people to notice taste and aroma-wise? What I look for in highlight is, um, first and foremost, tangerine zest, the tangerine pulp, and then after that, pineapple, and then after that, stone fruit. Um, there's also a, a slight toasted bread note from the grain that we use to make the beer. And then as you're drinking the beer, you get that combined tropical expression with a supporting note of light caramel that helps balance the hop bitterness. Thanks, Wayne. Uh, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts, and I'm going to encourage everybody to go visit CigarCityBrewing.com to learn more about Highlight, which I'm now in desperate need of having one, as well as all of the other beers that the brewery makes. Right on. Thank you so much, John. And my new book, The Craft Brewery Cookbook, is now available for pre-order online wherever you get your books. Packed with recipes and stories from some of the best breweries in the country, this cookbook has all of your beer and food pairing needs covered in fresh and inventive ways. Organized into chapters according to beer style, including hoppy ales, lagers and pilsners, wheat beers, and Belgian-style ales, this cookbook will help you discover each beer's style and flavor profile and how it pairs with the accompanying recipes. Published by Princeton Architectural Press, it releases on May 10th, so pre-order now wherever books are sold. Go check out the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. And don't forget, go visit All About Beer. On this show, Nate Weber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed the logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>